Good morning. My name is Doug Payne. I'm one of the pastors here at the branch. Uh, it's so good to see you. Uh, if you're visiting, like uh, Sean said, we welcome you and would love to get to know you a little bit. You, you can fill out the branch, uh, go to the branchboard.org and fill out connect card. Uh, and we'd love to get you connected that way. Uh, we'd also love you to just hang out and talk to the people next to you. Uh, there's lots of in, good information in the members of our church. Uh, and we would just love to, for you to hang out and, and talk with us. So good to see you. Welcome, church family, this morning. Welcome, friends. Uh, let's start uh, again uh, this sermon with prayer. Father, we do come to you as the Ancient of Days, the only one who has existed forever, who has chosen to enter into time through your Son. We thank you, our great God. You have not abandoned us in our sin. We praise you that this wasn't plan B for you, to send your son, to come into this world, to take on the sins of the world, to live a perfect life, to die, and to rise again. And we praise you, God, that he is not far from us, but he is with us by the Holy Spirit. And one day we will see him again face to face. We've been seen of these things. We pray that they would comfort us. We pray that the, the truths that we've sung about in, in the ancient of days coming, the, the lamb and the lion meeting us where we are, overcoming our sins, and the fact that he will come again would comfort our hearts. I pray for those that have never trusted in you as Savior would repent of their sins this morning and trust you. This one who invites anyone who will to come. God, we do praise you for this message, for this work. We pray that you would do this work in our hearts. And Father, we come to you through our lovely source of true delight, Jesus Christ. We have entered into this family through his blood. And we come to you not as those who have conquered, but who have been conquered by Jesus Christ. We come to you not as ones that are triumphant. And we see the facts of this all over the world. God, the, we do not yet live in a, in a place that has Jesus reigning in person. And we see this in places like India and in our own country. We, we pray for India, oh God, that have, has been wrecked by the pandemic once again. God, we cry out to you, how long, oh Lord, we ask that you would be with the Christians in India, those very, the, the, the minority of people there who are trusting you through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that they would be salt and light in a world that is so obviously dying and passing away. We pray that the hope of Jesus Christ and the fact that he's coming again would reign in their hearts, not in a triumphalistic way, but in a way that would, would bring Jesus to others and others to the feet of our dear Savior. So we ask, God, that there would be a revival of many Hindus and, and Muslims in India that would turn to you, oh God. We pray that you, you would use this time of suffering to bring glory to yourself through saving many people for your namesake. God, we ask for our friends who are there. We ask for Trevor and Nivea that you would please watch over them as they work, as they wait patiently, that you would protect them and care for them. God, be their very source of strength. And Father, we pray that God, not just for India, but we pray that for our own city. God, we ask that as the churches in this city preach the gospel, 
you would be glorified. For this is the purpose you sent Jesus into the world, was to glorify the Son. And we ask that in Corvallis, the, the churches would proclaim the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And your saints would be built up to go out and to serve you with the gospel. God, we pray that the gospel would be preached in such clarity and such power here in Corvallis that, that many would look on in fear and trembling and saying, what kind of a God is this? That would be attracted to him, that would, be, uh, would see him as the, the most holy and fearful being that says, come, come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I pray for the Christians here this morning and throughout the city that you would build us up in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, many of us come in here wrecked by hurt, wrecked by pain and, and suffering caused by people close to us and people far from us and, and pain that we don't even understand. Sometimes we cry and we don't know why. There's suffering in this world. And we look to you, our great God, to see us through the suffering. Our great Jesus, who was the suffering servant and fulfilled that role, we look to you now. We ask that you, by your spirit, would make yourself known to us. Open up your word to us, we pray. And open us up to your word. We confess with men of old and women of old that you are our only hope in life and death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So I ask our great God, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our soon coming king. Amen. So I wonder, where do you find your security? start with that question. Just let it sit on you for a minute. What makes you feel secure? I've been thinking about that since I heard uh, Colin Hansen on a podcast ruminate about this question as it applies to our, uh, our current culture. And he asks the question during the pandemic, why, why didn't more people turn to God during this time? Why didn't we see a, uh, a mass turning of sinners to God during such a global crisis? Uh, he said he believes it's due to an overrealized eschatology. Welcome to seminary class, right? Nerd alert. And, you know, everyone's like, I don't even know what that means. Uh, overrealized eschatology is that we are, we are not waiting for some glorious end where God makes everything right. But we are that end. You know, you know we're going to make everything right. Uh, everything's going to be right because uh, we believe the end is, is already in us. And, and it's possible that people did not turn to Christ because they had every hope that we would work all of these things out. That we would band together and we would fix the, the problem, you know, of the pandemic. We should be thankful, though, I think, to God that, uh, you know, for the gift of government and the gift of science that probably helped hasten the end to this thing quicker than it would have and saved many people alive. However, we have to ask the question again, where is our security? What makes you feel secure? Will you only feel secure when most people are vaccinated? Or when the virus has been eradicated? Friends, in all kindness, that is a false security. And maybe, you know, we demonstrate that we put more hope in government and science than we do in God. We do this in all kinds of ways, right? Not just in pandemics. We do this, uh, you know, 
we do this in other ways as well. And you, you can think of all of the other ways that you, you know, put your hope in things outside of God. Maybe in your own personality or in the, your own bank account or, or in others. Maybe it's a relationship. We do this in all kinds of ways. Not just in big events that you would think would turn people to God like a pandemic. What, why does this happen? Why do we put our security in things outside of our only true hope? Well, I think it's the age-old problem, right? It's that age-old problem that we think other things are more satisfying or securing or hopeful than God. It was no different for the disciples, right? We're in, in the book of Mark, and we're now in chapter 13. It was no different for them. They put their hope in actually national identity, they put their hope in their own identity as Jewish people, God's chosen ones. They put their hope and security in the temple, in their system of worship, more than they did the Son of Man. And before we're too hard on the disciples, we remember we must look in the mirror, right? If the disciples had a few hairs out of place, then we have bedhead and dirt all around our face. So turn to Mark 13, and we're going to look at the whole chapter of, of Mark 13 this morning, 37 verses. That's a lot more than we usually cover, uh, but I do believe this is one section of, of material. Uh, and if you, if you have a Bible that has red letters, you know, Jesus' words in red letters, you will notice that most of this chapter is all in red. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons we take it as one section is, is, is because Jesus is giving a discourse about the last days, the second coming, about destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So we're going to take it as one big section before we ever do a deep dive at another time. So just full disclosure, in all honesty, you know, I don't know where everything fits in this passage. Uh, I was talking to Nate Ross about this earlier this week. Uh, I, I have my best guesses, and, and I, I, I think I know where I stand in terms of, of the last days, but I am less certain than normal about how everything fits together. And I just w I want us to remember that as we work through unclear passages in the Bible, that we have to be charitable. Uh, I guess primarily I want you to be charitable to me. <laughs> but I want you to be charitable to each other. As we discuss these things, as you, as you talk about them, you know, after church or over lunch, we should be charitable about how one views matters that aren't as clear as other matters. You remember uh, that the Bereans searched the scriptures for themselves to th see whether these things be so. so. So do that. Also, remember, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Do you remember that book I, I recommended and, and uh, this sort of theological triage that we've talked about last summer? Um, we, we need to remember that, that some things we talk about this morning are not hills to die on. You know, the, the exact timing of when Christ will come, whether, whether there will be a, a literal thousand-year millennium or, or, or not, or whether we're already there, and, 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 and all the different takes that we can take on these things. I, I believe some of these things are not even actually matters to divide over. So there are people, you know, people in our church and even, even elders in this church will probably have different views on these things, and, and we should give each other charity on these matters. The one hill to die on in regard to this is that Jesus is coming back in person, and it's certain. He, he's coming back physically, and he will rule and reign over us all. That is what the text is about, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So we should be charitable with others, suspicious of our own opinions. If we're not charitable, it may be that we found our security and our hope in something other than Christ and him crucified. The disciples certainly did. And so do I from time to time. Don't you? So turn to Mark 13. There, there was uh, suffering ahead for the disciples. And they needed to have security and hope in the right things. So in, in Mark 13, Jesus talked to them about his second coming. 
And he's going to, I think, the, the main point is that, that he is going to give them the certainty of his second coming is meant to secure his elect. It's meant to secure them. But how does it do that? Ironically, I think it does it through the pain of suffering and his promise to sustain. Number one is the pain of suffering and his promise to sustain. And the second way is by the discipline of waiting and watching. So through the pain of suffering and his promise to sustain, verses 1 through 23, we're just taking big sections, so we're summarizing here. Uh, and, and then by the discipline of waiting and watching, verses 24 through 37. So through the pain of suffering and his promises to sustain. Mark 13, 1 and 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will be none, not there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And he said, and, and, and said, what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? So far, this is God's holy word. So, just a little context, the disciples were leaving the temple with Jesus, right? Directly after the widow put in her two mites. You remember Josh preached about that last week, the, so beautifully, how the widow put in all that she had. Uh, and to this, this was a testimony to Jesus of her, of her faith, of her fruitfulness. So Jesus has just highlighted what he values. Not the big givers and beautiful temple, but faith expressed in works. Zach, Zach Eswine, pastor, puts it. He doesn't value the big things done famously fast, but the slow, mostly overlooked things done over a long period of time. And as the disciples walk out of the temple with Jesus, their hearts are not drawn to the lowly act of the widow, but to the beauty of the temple. They say what all travelers uh, to Jerusalem would have said at that time. Look at this beautiful building. Look at these great stones, Jesus. And friends, they had good reason to say how beautiful the temple was. Uh, the thing was massive. It, uh, one commentator says, uh, studying the histories of the Jewish people, it was 500 meters by 300 meters. So five American football fields long by three football fields wide. And the stones themselves were, were massive. They were, uh, were amazing. Archaeologists have found that some stones were up to 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep, weighing over a million pounds. So the disciples could be forgiven, right, for their impressions. Though this was a passing comment, right? Look at the beautiful, look at these stones and this beautiful building. Those is a passing comment made by travelers to Jerusalem. What came out was what captivated the disciples the most. Impressive, but temporary and tangible things that you could touch, right? You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say, so we can look back and say, come on, guys, you should have known that it was Jesus that was the most impressive of all. But we are so easily captivated by the physical and temporal, aren't we? But now Jesus, who should have captivated them, is standing before them. He is the place where God meets his people. He is now taking the place of the temple. The temple was always meant to be temporary. It was always going to find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And his people were going to meet in him. It changes from a beautiful building to the most beautiful person. Jesus, the true temple. It was not beautiful because of his outward appearance. Isaiah tells us that. But because of his identity as the son of God. But on the things that brought them security and identity, the physical temple in Jerusalem, their, their, their heritage, Jesus gives them a startling answer in verse 2. Did you notice it? He says, do you see these great buildings? 
There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. <laughs> what an amazing, this was an amazing prediction, right? Jesus was pulling the rug right out from their feet. And, and, and that what was left was for them to just fall over to the ground. This thing they so cherished, this, this meeting place between God and man, the thing that had given them hope and identity was going to be destroyed. So on their way, on their walk up to the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, so they would have gone out of the temple up to the Mount of Olives, the four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, ask Jesus privately about what he said publicly. So just to reset the context a little bit for us, okay? Jesus has done the bulk of his teaching. Josh taught us this last week. He's done a bulk of his teaching in the court of women, his previous teaching in the court of women. And in, in the temple, he, they move from the court of women through the court of the Gentiles, exiting out of Solomon, Solomon's portico, or, or the beautiful gate, which is east, headed, headed east. And in the 3,300 feet or steps to the Mount of Olives, these four disciples are mulling over what Jesus said. They're, they're mulling it over in their minds. The temple's going to be destroyed. What in the world? And in verse 4, they say to him again, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? It would have been a natural question for the Jewish people. Any, anyone who is a Jewish person would have, would have said, hey, you know, our identity is tied to this thing. Uh, and they would have thought that the destruction of it meant the end of the world. Maybe it would be something for us like the Washington Monument, you know, the, Je the Jefferson Memorial uh, destroyed, or the White House, or, or the Capitol Building destroyed. We'd want to know when, what's, <laughs> when is that going to happen, and what's going to be the sign of these things. It feels like the apocalypse, the end of days, the final day of the Lord. They would have believed that. That was, that was it. The Lord was coming in judgment. They believed that to no longer have the temple meant the end of the world. And they wanted to know what, when that was going to happen. Have you ever wanted to know that? When will the end of the world be? When will Jesus come back? When, when will be the day of judgment? And we've seen, we've had books written about it. And we've, we've seen people predict it all, all over the place throughout our lives. Maybe not so much now. Uh, but in the past, when I was growing up, that... You know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 88. Well, maybe it's 89 reasons why he's coming back in 89, and so on and so forth. And they wanted to know. So Jesus answers their questions, when will these things be, and what will be the sign? In the rest of the chapter, verses 5 through 37, basically he's answering those two questions. And his answer is surprising and has been, like I said before, it's been debated a bit between uh, Christians from time immemorial. So good Christians, godly Christians, Orthodox Christians believe differently about the timing of these things. I personally believe that Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem in most of this chapter. Verses uh, 5 through 23. I think is about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. And most of this chapter is describing what will happen in 40 years from when Jesus is saying it. Jesus is giving a prediction of what will happen. And in so doing, he gives a sign, he gives evidence that he is actually the very word of the Lord. I think there's something else also going on here. Uh, it, it, theologians refer to it as prophetic telescoping. So Mark 13 is telling us uh, in part about the second advent. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the first advent and the second advent are actually one event on God's timetable. Right, and often there's, there's, there's prophecies in the Old Testament. You're often, I'm confused by them as well. Like, which one, what's it talking about and where is it pointing to? 
And, and so it, it, it may be something like uh, sitting atop Mary's Peak and looking all the way to see Mount Rainier on a clear day. You know, it's this, this telescoping. You're, you're not able to see everything in the valley. You know, how, how far does the Willamette Valley extend? What you can see is this other peak. And that's sort of what Jesus, uh, it's part of what Jesus is doing here. Is he's, there's, some, there's some telescoping and double fulfillment going on here. One, one example of this would be in Genesis 3.15. After the fall of Adam and Eve, what does God promise them? He promises Eve, that she would bear a son who, who would crush the head of the serpent. Cain and Abel are born. It would be natural for her to think, oh, I have the son that he's talking about. But actually, this is not the son, but pointing to the true son who would come thousands of years later in Jesus Christ. There's, there's some prophetic telescoping. They, they were types of the son pointing to the greater son, Jesus some of that is happening. While, so while, on, while one prediction is being fulfilled in some way, it is also pointing to a final and full fulfillment of it. That's why I've titled the sermon, Already, Not Yet. There are days of the Lord, and then there is the day of the Lord. So what's already and what's not yet? Let's read verses 5 through 13. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Excuse me. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There, these are the, but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you to, over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is God's word. So Jesus is speaking of a day of the Lord that will bring judgment on Jerusalem and destruction to the temple. But he doesn't want his disciples to be led astray. This is not the final day. Did you see that in verse 7? He says the end is not yet. But it's the beginning of birth pains. It's, it's not the day of birth, but it's the contractions that the mother feels that says the baby is on its way. I believe we, we are living in those last days and have been ever since the cross. I personally believe uh, that uh, we are also in the tribulation now. And so were the disciples. So I, you know, it, it may be that there are greater and lesser tribulations as we, as we go on through history. That's certainly true. You can look at the world wars. Those were greater tribulations than now. And there may be a greater one still. It looks like that will probably happen since he said there's, you know, there, there will be no tribulation like this until the end of times. So maybe there's this double fulfillment here. But we are actually living in the last days, in a tribulation now. So how are we to act during this time? How are the disciples supposed to act? We have to remember this was written to them, right? How are the disciples supposed to act? And, and then how do we glean from what Jesus tells them? Well, first, he says in verse 7, don't be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Peter, James, John, Andrew, this is a time for confidence. Jesus is in complete control of everything. And, and nothing can happen outside his 
sovereignty. Not even the destruction of the temple can change his divine plan. In fact, it is his plan. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Second, you notice in verse 11 what he says. Don't be anxious. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I think this was at least a foretaste, uh, at least partly fulfilled in the book of Acts. The gospel was proclaimed to all nations. As you read through the book of Acts, you see how the power of the preached word spread and the church was built and nations upon nations were. Don't be anxious. The gospel is prevailing. It will prevail. The gates of hell cannot prevail against my church. The church is going to go in and overtake and plant its flags. And the gates of hell cannot hold captive those whom the gospel will reach. They were not even actually given time to prep. You know, I give lots of uh, time to sermon prep uh, in my sermons. Uh, they, they just said, hey, listen, don't worry about preparing beforehand because the Holy Spirit, rely on the Holy Spirit. He's going to speak through you. In that time, you know, as Peter in, in, cha- in Acts chapter 2 stands before the council, in that time, the Holy Spirit gave him words based on the, the Old Testament readings and, and how he connected it all to Jesus finally. And in power, he proclaims the good news of the gospel. Don't be anxious, friends. You, this is not a time for anxiety, but to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. It's certain that he will return and he will gather you to himself. Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. Third, remember those who endure to the end will be saved in verse 13. Even during the worst kinds of betrayal, like family betrayal, like father handing child over and child handing father over to save their own skin, even in that kind of betrayal, remember, endure to the end because I am your hope, your only hope in life and death, and you, I will save you if you trust in me. Why? Because the suffering servant accomplishes his best work through suffering. Friends, God is not working in spite of your suffering. God is working through your suffering. Remember, those who endure to the end will be saved. He worked through the suffering of his first disciples. He will also work through the suffering of his disciples in 2021. Don't lose heart. Endure to the end. You will be saved. The next section, uh, it seems to tell us about the, the, the circumstances of the disciples are going from bad to worse. So just when you think it's okay, just when you think the suffering's over, it's almost over, another wave of suffering wafts over your body. He says in verses 14 through 23, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and 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 perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. 
So many interpreters, some interpreters understand this passage to have double fulfillment, like I was talking about before. Um, in, in one sense, it was filled, fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Titus, the Roman general, sacked Jerusalem, bringing destruction and, and overturning every stone of the temple. It said that the fires, you know, melted the gold and the gold was running through. And somehow, I don't know how, but they were able to turn every stone and, and to, to sack Jerusalem, to sack the temple for, for the gold and for the artifacts and, and for all of those things. You can read about it in Josephus. And he tells, he tells of it in, in the Jewish wars, his history of the Jewish people. So by fire and conflagration, the temple was destroyed. Much of the description in these verses, I, I think, was fulfilled when Titus took Jerusalem. Uh, it, there may be room for another fulfillment. Some interpreters understand it to be so, that this, this also will be fulfilled in the man of lawlessness. So Paul's, you know, as Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 1 through 8, he talks about this man of lawlessness who, who will come and who, who will set up him, himself and he will be an abomination uh, that desolates. So it's possible that, that Titus was a fulfillment of it and there will be a, a, a sort of final fulfillment of it to come. Just a, just a reminder, friends, that you know the things that are less clear in Scripture should be interpreted by the things that are more clear in Scripture. That's an interpretive principle. When we're unsure and you know, trusted interpreters take different understandings, we must hold our interpretation loosely, right? Not so loosely that we're tossed about with every wind of doctrine, but humble enough to say, hey, look, we could be wrong about this. So whenever this time is, whether it's Jesus was referring to the forthcoming destruction of, of the temple in AD 70 or the judgment at the end of time or both, we need to recognize how the suffering of this time can affect the a very elect. The, the elect in scripture are those whom God has predestined to eternal life. This is not the time to go in, into a teaching on who, who, that, who that is and what all of that means. But Jesus says those people that he secured with his love, they are going to suffer. And their suffering will be so severe at times. And, and suffering will be so severe in times like these that unless he cut it short, it would consume the very elect. He does it for their sake in verse 20. So he warns them to be on guard, to be on guard against those who claim that Christ has come during this time or that, you know, someone else is the Christ. Jesus says, be on guard against these people. They, these people will even be able to perform signs and wonders. It, it would be like, you know, someone in the signs and wonders movement today actually claiming to be Christ. This is a warning against the disciples' request for a sign. They said, what will the sign of these things be? And Jesus says, be on guard. There will, people that, there will be people that perform signs before you. They will be able to do lots of things. Do you remember his words? Some will come to him in the last time and say, you know, Jesus, haven't we done marvelous things in your name? Haven't, haven't we even performed signs and wonders? Haven't we even done these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So Jesus is providing a warning against those who look for signs. Here, here's what he said to the religious people of the day that, that demanded a sign of him. A wicked and adulterous nation looks for a sign. And he said, I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah in the belly of the whale. The son of man will die and be buried for three days and then raised again. Be on guard against looking for signs and wonders. Why? Because they can lead you astray. Jesus is the Christ, friends. His suffering, death, and resurrection are the proof that he is God's chosen one. You know, we all have birth certificates showing who our mother and father is. Jesus' certificate 
is this. He was vindicated by God. His suffering. And he rose again from the dead. He ascended to the Father. And that should all be a certain proof for us that he will come again. His words are true. Now, just to set the context again. Jesus is telling them all of this two days before he's about to die. Two days before Passover. When he would be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles. And he wants them to be ready to trust in him when things fall apart and they are going to fall apart. Be on guard. Do not get lulled into a false sense of security, he's telling them. And Matt Munger and I uh, see this on our t-ball team. A false sense of security. We keep telling them, right? Keep your eyes on the ball. I, I ask them when I'm out there, where's the ball now? I ask them because I know what's going to happen. Right? You know it too. Some kid's going to get up there, and he's going to hit the sweet spot of the bat on that ball, and it's going to smash one of these kids in the face. Right? It's going to happen. So be on guard. Don't get lulled in a false sense of security as you're playing in the dirt or picking the daisies, whatever they're doing out there. I don't know what they're doing. It's sometimes really frustrating. But they're not paying attention to the ball most of the time. Be on guard. I, I don't want any of them to lose teeth before their time. Right? So Jesus is being kind to them. He's telling them all this beforehand. And he is, he's not giving them an end to their suffering, but a way to get through their suffering. Look to the crucified and risen Christ who will come again. This is how the certainty of the, the second coming secures his people, friends, by sustaining them through their suffering. And by replacing what they trust in. You trust in the temple? What is your security? Jesus is replacing that with himself. He's saying, trust in me. I am the one, disciples, I am the one who is going to give my life for you. I've predicted this. Three times before, the Son of Man must be handed over to the Gentiles. He must suffer, he must die, but he will rise again. You're going to suffer. You're even going to deny me at times. But I will secure you with my love. I will secure you with my death, my resurrection, but also with my coming again. And Jesus is sustaining them through suffering. He's also replacing what they trust with himself. He wants to be, he must be the one that disciples trust in. So, not only is he sustaining them through suffering, he's also telling them to wait and watch. By the discipline of waiting and watching, they will be, in one sense, secured at the end of the day. It says in verse 24 through 27, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, I think this is where Jesus is turning now to his second coming. There are some interpreters, very convincing interpreters, that said, you know, this too was fulfilled in, in A.D. 70. Uh, they're, you know, just to use another fancy word, they're called preterists. They believe all of this was historical. It doesn't seem that way to me. In, in verse 24 through 27, it, it does seem to me, at least, I could be wrong, but this looks like the coming of the Son of Man at the end of time. So we read about the coming of the Son of Man. Davy read about it for us in Daniel 7. We sung about it in those two songs. This Jesus, who will be betrayed... Who, who, who looked like a weakling on the cross, who died in shame and dishonor, that same Jesus will come in power and glory. That same Jesus, who was dead, is now risen and coming again. 
So friends, teaching, the teaching about the second coming or end times theology should not make you anxious. It's not meant to make you anxious. If you trust in Christ to save you, it should be anticipated with much joy. The, you know, the language of the darkened sun and moon and the lights falling, the, the stars falling from heaven and the powers being shaken for the Christian is not meant to shake you in anxiety. It's meant to shake you awake, to anticipate his coming, to receive him. Are you experiencing suffering and hardship? It will come to an end. Jesus will gather all his elect to himself, as we read about. The image of the the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's a way of, of, of talking, of saying that his elect, those who repent of their sins and trust him alone... It's a way of saying that they are totally secure. And there's the ends of the earth. They could be at the ends of the earth, in the very corner of the earth. Some tribe in Africa. Some forgotten people group in India. There's no corner of the earth that Jesus cannot gather all of his elect. There is no possibility of his elect being finally destroyed. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They will suffer. They will die. But the Lord will gather them to himself. We we don't know when that could happen. It could be today. Dwelling on this certainty is a means by which you will endure to the end. Jesus says to endure, and then he gives you the very means by which to do that. Dwell on him coming again. Wait and watch. Persevere in the faith by doing this. Death cannot hold him back from coming again. Neither can your death hinder him from coming and securing you to himself. Like the promise of Gandalf coming at first light, the Lord Jesus will return and vanquish every foe. When it seems like the sky is falling, look up. When the moon is is darkened, the stars are following to earth, the the meteor that is supposed to destroy the earth are signs not to fear, but to cause you to look up and remember that Christ will certainly come again. Say, great, but when will all of this happen? Right? That was the question. That, That was the question the disciples asked. Do you notice how Jesus answered it? He doesn't give them dates, but tells them nobody knows. The timing of the end, nobody knows. So if you think you know, or or you're trying to figure out, you know, through your study of end times, exactly when Jesus is going to come back, uh, you are wasting your time. Jesus says that nobody knows. He, he highlights the surety of his word, though, and calls them to be on guard and stay awake. Verses 28 through 31, or through 37. I'll, I'll read 28 through 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will pass away This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So here's another lesson from the fig tree. Summer was approaching, and the fig tree gave them a hint. You know, it's like in Corvallis. When the grass seed is in the air and you can't stop sneezing, you know that it's spring and summer is near. But it's not summer yet. It's close. And Jesus is saying that when you see all of these things take place, when you, when you see the temple and Jerusalem destroyed, I think that's what he's referring to, that the coming of the Son of Man is near, but not yet. It's a very strong statement about the words of Jesus. He claims that they, his words have the same authority as the Old Testament. Truly I say to you, 
And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You, you can trust him. So just in regards to this generation, will never pass away until all these things take place. I think this section is referring to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And then the next section is actually referring to the coming of the Son of Man. So the, the generation that he's talking to, uh, they are going to see the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, but as for the coming of the Son of Man, nobody knows the time or the hour. Friends, this, the, the fact that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and it happened according to detail, should cause us to trust him supremely. It should, it should cause us to say, you are Lord. It should cause us to be suspicious when we're suspicious of him. Every word of his mouth was true. Every word of the scriptures that he testified to were true. But concerning that day, verse 32, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with all this? Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Each with his work to do and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, disciples, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus is telling them, he's exhorting them to watchfulness, a patience, and a, and a, a waiting. This is what the Christian life feels like to you. One long series of just waiting. That, that's normally what life is like. We don't often, like Josh said last week, we don't often live radical lives. Most of us in here are probably not going to do something super extraordinary. Sorry to burst your bubble, college students, uh, but most people are ordinary, and that's good. Most of us are just called to to live out the Christian life one year to the next, to the next, to the next, waiting and watching. And honestly, the most radical thing you can do is be a member of a church, the same local church for 30 years. Stay in a marriage your whole life or use your singleness for the glory of God all of your life. You want to be radical? Do that. You want to be radical? Read your Bible every day and pray. You want to be radical? Talk to your friends about Jesus. You want to be radical? Live an ordinary life for your whole life. By the ordinary means of grace, rely on the Holy Spirit. Don't depend on signs and wonders. Don't depend on emotions. Don't get up. Don't get down. Don't, don't think something's wrong because you're not, you're not emotionally involved in worship every Sunday. Pray for your emotions to, to be in line with the truth of God's word. But friends, most of the Christian life is just watching and waiting. It's just looking up. It is trying to let the Lord convince you that his words are true. That his mercies really are new every morning. And great is his faithfulness. Jesus is calling you, the disciples, and I think us, to ordinary lives of the discipline of waiting and staying awake. Waiting and watching. You know, Jesus exhorts his disciples who he's talking to and all who read this to be vigilant and waiting in watchfulness. As one commentator put it, in confident trust in the outworking of God's sovereign purpose in history. 
He didn't call you to figure out the date or try to connect prophecy to current events or to find out who Gog and Magog are. He's called you to watchfulness and waiting. Don't be fooled by the voices that say, everything will go on it has in the past. That's not true, friends. Everything will not go on as it has in the past. Jesus is coming back and he's bringing a new day. That new day has already started in the gospel. He's making all things new. He started that in your heart when you believed and repented of your sins. The fruition of that will, it will come to full fulfillment in Jesus coming again. So we are to keep looking. One pastor said we are to keep looking up. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions tend to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And 1 John tells us, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Friends, keep looking up. Wait and watch. Jesus, he's coming again. And it will be the fulfillment of what he promised when he started his good work in you. He will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would finish this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, every Sunday, most Sundays, almost every Sunday, we end our, after the sermon, with a prayer of confession. One of the reasons we do that is because we take communion every Sunday. And we believe that God has called us to examine ourselves, to see whether we be in the faith or not, to examine ourselves so, so we don't take unworthily. Part of what he's asked us to do is to confess our sins to him. And in so doing, it's a means of grace for us because he promised, if you confess your sins, I will forgive them. I'm just. If I don't forgive them, I'm not just. Confess your sins, brothers and sisters. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I'll, I'll pray a short prayer of confession, then I'm going to give us time of silence for personal confession. I say this often, but, you know, the corporate gathering is not, a, is not a time for your personal devotions. But this is the time where, you know, you maybe have had noise all week long. Maybe this is the first time in your week that you have quiet I encourage you to use that quiet to talk to Jesus. Talk to God about your sins. You can confess them freely, openly. Confess them biblically. Don't beat around the bush. Confess them in hope because Jesus wants to assure you of his pardon. So I will pray and then I'll give you a time of silence. Father, at times... Even your word has told, has told us that we don't know what to pray for as we ought. That the spirit must intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. But Father, this is a time that, that we know what we need to pray for. We know that we have sinned this week. We've sinned in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Father, you've, you've told us to be looking for your coming, to stay awake. And we've been lulled to sleep, God, by our anxieties that tell us that they're more powerful than God. That if we just think, and that it'll be solved. That's just not true. God, we've been lulled to sleep by even just busyness of our life, going from one thing to the next, and we forgot to think about you are coming again, and we will see you. God, we, we do not stay awake 
And sometimes it's because other people have hurt us and we have fixated on that. God, we pray that you would heal. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would, in your kindness, remind us that your coming is meant to secure us, that you actually love us in Jesus Christ. I pray that as we confess our sins, you would hear, you would heal, you would forgive. Amen. Please take a moment of silence. Now, for those of you who trust in Christ alone, his death, his resurrection, alone for your salvation, lift up your heads and your hearts. Those of you who fear that Jesus might not be able to save you, hear these words in an assurance of part, as an assurance of pardon and say, thanks be to God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness,